Well, as redundant as it seems, now we are supposed to give a sermon. It seems to me, though, sitting in that moment, that's exactly what all these sermons for all these years in this place have motivated this community to become. Not to welcome special honored guests, but for us to feel as as if we are special and honored guests. Having an up-close front row seat to seeing God work in the lives and in the hearts of people. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. We've done a lot of clapping here. I hope that that interaction continues. I'm a pastor with a very large ego and very low confidence. So it's your job for the next 30 minutes to keep me going, especially over our topic today, because I must admit, before I begin teaching this, this is not one of those topics where I've paced through this for the past 20 years, and I have become some sort of spiritual expert. I have dreaded these two weeks all year because I knew it was going to be my job to talk about this specific spiritual discipline. It's one of the least understood, and it's even less practiced. I believe there are hundreds, maybe thousands of reasons for that. We don't have time to go into those today. But even still, our sacred text, the Bible, models it and encourages us to do it. Still, it can feel, and you'll know what I'm talking about with this descriptor, it can feel so one-sided. We normally only resort to this, almost all of us, only resort to this when we're out of options. This is such a big point as we start our teaching time, our time of instruction together today. We even have language for this that sports has adopted. We call it the Hail Mary. There's so many words we use around it that literally mean the opposite of discipline, don't they? It feels more like a one last chance kind of thing than a first go-to kind of thing. The truth is without discipline, prayer becomes a maybe thing. Or a while we're at church thing. But when we keep prayer in this reduced capacity, we limit its power and its effectiveness. So today, we start a difficult two-week series changing our minds about prayer. And what we believe here, what we know from experience is if we can change our mind, our heart will soon follow. I hope after these two weeks, you will be more convinced to participate in prayer because you understand it more. And in order to reach this goal, we must embrace it as a discipline that when we participate in it, it changes us into a type of person that we couldn't be without it. But let's address the elephant in the room. Discipline is a loaded word, isn't it? I want you just to pay attention to reaction when you hear that word discipline. Everybody's got one, and they're usually at the end of two extremes. Our current culture has a love-hate relationship with discipline, doesn't it? That's where you get active. Yes, we have a love-hate relationship with discipline. On the one hand, we're some of the most relaxed and undisciplined Americans to have ever lived. Life has been so comfortable for us for so long. It's allowed us to follow the path of least resistance for so long. You see, farm to table used to be something that described our kitchens, not our restaurants. I think we have a fascination with discipline for so many reasons, but let me call out a few. On the other hand, as Americans, there are men like Jocko Willink and David Goggins and Chad Wright. Have you ever heard of these guys? They've built brands and huge followings around the same basic slogan. Maybe you could now begin to build one too. Here's the basis of their business model. Be disciplined and do hard things. Let me save you some time reading Extreme Ownership. That's kind of what it says for a couple hundred pages. 
I think the root of our fascination with these types of people is deep down, we don't believe we can have that kind of intentional relationship with discipline. Maybe even with anything, especially difficult things. With this, I'd like to give you a very honest and direct phrase. Phrases help me remember things after Sunday's over, and that's when it's most helpful. I want you to know today that anger and accountability, that's not my motivator. Sometimes on this stage, I get big and I start pointing because I'm so passionate about something, and that's mistaken often for Ben being angry. I'm not angry or trying to hold you accountable today. I'm saying these things out of love and care. Deal? All right, you're catching on. I want to give you a very honest and direct phrase. This is what it is. Your level of discipline will determine your level of maturity. Man, that's hard to hear, isn't it? It's also very honest and very caring. So many people in my life tried to tell me this when I was a younger man, and I just didn't want to hear it, so I didn't hear it. Have you ever been there? So let me tell you in as caring a way as I know how, no one has ever accidentally matured spiritually. I've never met anyone who looked up 15 years into their adulthood and said, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm spiritually mature. How did this happen? It just doesn't work that way. Our level of discipline and intentionality is what leads to our growth. See, discipline calls us into an activity when desire isn't there. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the one I desire the least. That's the kind of thing you can say after you've already resigned. Unfortunately, we spend a great deal of time here in the West selling a sexy faith. This has been to our detriment. We can fill arenas and church campuses with Jesus-loving people who worship and listen with intensity worthy of Instagram. But who, impressed by life, have no actual relationship with the God they worship. Their relationship is with their oddly famous pastor or oddly famous worship pastor. See, it's allowed so many of us to grow chronologically as Jesus followers, but never through that methodical relationship-building way that involves prayer, when we begin to communicate with God over time. I would submit to you today that the solution to what's going on in the church in the West where we're filling auditoriums and campuses and piping people in via satellite to listen to speeches and checking in on YouTube to listen to even more speeches, it's led us nowhere. And the solution to this problem is actually prayer. I want to back this up with some Bible because when I start slinging opinions around, it can get dangerous, can it, Vertical. I think this is what James, the brother of Jesus, was actually getting at when he wrote this. This is James chapter 5, verse 16. By the way, if you want to follow along in the Bible app, all this stuff is there, so you can just kind of calm down and listen. Everything that hits the screen will be right there on your smartphone. You just hit more events, vertical church, it's all there inside the Bible app. James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. I had to read it a few times because I thought surely it said the post of a righteous person has great power in its working. Oddly enough, the Bible doesn't reference social media as the most effective way to change people. 
So let me just take a moment to address the people who have been following God for a while in the room. The rest of you just kind of take a break and relax. I hold my heaviest accountability for those of us that have been following God for a while and should be better and know better and do better because Jesus has changed us to make us better. Make sense? If this verse is true, why don't we see more of God's activity around us, Jesus' follower? Could it be that the few prayers that we're slinging up to God are not being spoken by righteous people? Maybe, perhaps, especially since the pandemic, we have become consumed with other people's sin and we have become anesthetized to our own. Maybe Jesus' follower, if you're willing to listen today, maybe you should start by pursuing being right before God. Then offer your prayers for a broken world around us. Maybe you should back away from your keyboard and push up to the throne of God. Something I'm willing to try. It's been my personal experience that without the discipline of prayer, in my life, I get two critical things confused and reversed. If you pay attention to my teaching, you'll notice that that's a word that I use a lot. Because when we remove ourselves from active relationship with God, we get things turned around. Exactly the opposite. 180 from what is correct and true. I'd like to share two of those things with you in the hopes that through this brutally honest part of this teaching today, you will find that it isn't just me that does this, it's all of us. What are the two things that I get confused in my life when I back away from God's plan for what he has designed for me, often because I'm scared of what it may contain? Control and influence. I want us to think about these two things together today before we get to the Bible, and we're gonna get there, and I can't wait to get there. We just gotta set the stage, okay? Everybody still with me? For most of us, when it comes to our everyday lives, we believe that we're commander-in-chief. That makes sense, right? We have so many choices in our lives these days. I mean, unless we're at Crossroads for four months, then you have no choices, apparently. <laughs> no, note, note to self, visit, don't stay long. When it comes to our lives, because of all the decisions that we're able to make, the way that we're able to dial in our preferences via retail and Amazon and all the choices that we have today, it can confuse us into thinking that we're in control. And if we're especially religious, then we will at times allow God to have some influence over our lives. Feels like the right thing to do. When in reality, from a believing and biblical perspective, it's the exact opposite. Let me depart from my normal rhythm here and just get straight to the point. We believe that in our lives, we are in control. But when it comes to our lives, God is actually in control. And because of his deep and perfect love for us, he's given us the gift of influence. Do you see the reversal there? See, if we got this straight in our lives, we would straighten out so much of what's gotten us twisted around these days. We're not in control. God is. And the more that I put my mind around that idea, the more thankful I become because I look back over my story and I realize those times where I was in complete control, things went absolutely sideways. Have you ever been there? 
I love how direct the Bible gets with this. See, sometimes the Bible says things and it invites us into curious investigation. What does that mean? At other times it lays it out for us in black and white. No need for fancy or impressive pastoral interpretation. It's just right there in the book. Proverbs 69 is one of these occasions that reads this way. You need to figure out a way to write this down or remember it. Proverbs 16:9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You instantly recognize the truth of that statement. That about sums it up, doesn't it? We plan and we plan and we plan. We worry and then we plan some more. We take control and we offer when our plans lead us to places we don't like. Our life presses in on us. We offer God a little bit of limited influence. But in the end, it's God who's in control. Over and over again, I have sat in doctor's offices personally over the pages of my own journal, in restaurants with you and in your own living rooms. And this fact has become more and more clear to me. God is in control. And I know I can hear your pushback. And can I join you in that pushback for just a moment? I love the fact that God is in control, but sometimes I just wish that he did a better job. We talk about real things here. Is that that okay with everyone? The doors aren't locked. You're, You're free to leave if I offend you. Thank God when we push back, he pushes back. That's the kind of love that God has for us. You don't push God away once and he says, hey, bro, it's up to you. When we push back on God, God sees an opportunity to push back on us. He's neither impressed nor deterred with our rants or lack of understanding. How do I know that? I read it this week. No, I've lived it my whole life. You would not believe if someone had recorded me alone with God the things that I have said to him in my frustration and anger. He has not been deterred. He uses those moments as moments to move in. Now we get to the meat of the morning. Everybody okay? We need to stand up and stretch a little bit. We're going to take the rest of the morning, about 13 minutes, and we're going to dig into one of the most real and honest prayers recorded in the Bible. It's full of honesty and humility, desperation, declaration. It's a real prayer. And because of these things, I, will, I think it's going to help us to engage, to pray more, and to pray in this kind of way when we do pray. Something this real and this honest can't help but motivate us to take action. So let's investigate it together, okay? In a slightly different way than we normally do, I want us to look very closely at the words used, the tone implied, and the lessons offered inside of this prayer. In fact, if you're here today and you've struggled with prayer, and that's probably most of us, right? You could actually take this as a text or a script, if you will, to start praying. I have in my life often used the pray it until you mean it strategy. And believe it or not, God will take even that kind of effort and meet you in it. It's worked for me. Perhaps it's worked for you. So let's dive in, shall we? Psalm 51. Thank you, whoever you are. Psalm 51 begins this way. As we read it, picture this person, head bowed, eyes closed, ripping open their heart in front of God. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, there's some biblical language in there, but you know if a prayer starts that way, there's a backstory. This prayer begins with a man who has found himself on the backside of two very specific and terrible actions. They're the kind of actions that you can't help but replay in your mind right before you fall asleep. The kind of actions that random events remind you of throughout your day. The kind of actions that haunt a person. As we mentioned before, even in the service, these times trend towards us going to prayer. I believe there's something holy in that. There's some comfort in seeing a biblical character take the opportunity when things are going sideways and they feel overrun by their own sin and iniquity to take that to God. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you find yourself in that place, don't stop doing that or feel judged by the Christian community because you only pray when it gets tough because most of us aren't praying at all. When you have things going on in your life that drive you towards prayer, you dig into that. The primary thing I want you to see here from the beginning of this prayer is this person recognizes there is something ultimate out there greater than himself. That's something we could all remind ourselves of very often. The world's going to keep on spinning even without your effort. Yeah, I agree. This person also believes that even in their failure, man, I just got to stop. We may run a little bit over 10 minutes. That's okay. I just have to stop and say, those of you who were raised in Christian conservative homes and think that God reserves his greatest love for you when you have enough Christian merit badges to get the Eagle Christian Award, that's not how it works. I can tell you in my own life, the times where I failed miserably, especially over the scene of my family. That's when God moves in and says, I've been waiting to love you this way for so long. And this person believes this. He calls on God's love and mercy. And so, if you're in one of those beautiful days where your failures aren't haunting you, congratulations. But if you're like some of the rest of us, you need to hear this. It's during these times that you can call on the love and the mercy of God. And the Bible explains to us in so many different pages, that's when you will receive it. This is kind of what prayer sounds like. It's a little bit more intriguing than hoping your team wins the Super Bowl, isn't it? Prayer continues, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is beautiful imagery. I felt this way. I know the stain of failure over my life. And it seems like the harder I try to clean it, I just rub it deeper into the fibers and into the padding underneath. It's a stain that's going to exist forever. If it's just my efforts that will clean it up, there's a tone of desperation here. I felt that desperation. The key takeaway here is that he takes his desperation to God. A little bit of my own story here. He doesn't take his desperation to the attention of the opposite sex or to a substance. He takes his desperation to God. The prayer continues, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I don't know if you've ever been in this place in your life, but I know I have. 
Those moments where you realize in an instant how much pain your decisions have caused around you. And it can overwhelm you. It's always in front of you. Acknowledgement can be so painful, and that's why we avoid it. The enemy knows this, and he traps us in this often. Here the writer seems to say, no matter how hard I try, I can't forget who I was. I'm always staring directly into the eyes of who I used to be. Against you, he says, and only you, God, have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Obviously, the things that this man had done, they were sinful to other people. They hurt other people, and that's obviously on his mind. What we see in this prayer, though, is that he understands his location. God is in charge, and he has influenced poorly. His influence destroyed a marriage, and it ended up ending a man's life through his placement in a war. He continues to pray, working through his emotions. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. If you're ever looking for an anti-American dream verse in the Bible, there it is. We're taught through the way that we're raised, and this is really problematic with the view of the Bible, that because of our intrinsic value as Americans, we can be whoever we want to be if we just tap into our natural abilities with a solid, intellectually informed work ethic. Where that fails, we'll just leverage our connections through your mom and them. This worldview is firmly American, but according to the Bible, it's also firmly false. We are born broken people. And no matter how hard you try to leverage the gifts that you've been given by God without God, it won't work. You need the blood of Jesus Christ over your story. We've done such a poor job in churches selling the benefits of being aligned with Jesus because at a base level, we believe with enough talent and money, we can create the lives that we want. How is that working for most of us? Here in this prayer, this man stops and says, from the beginning, I was a wreck. Just as an aside, we're the kind of church that really believes that, that from the beginning, we're all a wreck, no matter how many khaki pants and kolhans we own. Zooming out, I want you to see that these first six verses are just a commitment to reality. To help you with the practicing of prayer, I want you to remember this as step one. Acknowledge guilt. Understanding that you are not the ultimate authority. It's not your rules that govern reality. There's an ultimate force out there greater than you, and his name is God. How world-changing would it be if only 10% of the world believed this? How would it change our community if 10% of Glugstadt actually believed this? Here's how one of my new favorite influences says it. I love this quote. Prayer is a surrender to the reality that there's someone more ultimate than you. Without this, we shrink our world, what should be hopes, dreams, and concerns, down to wants, needs, and feelings. Sometimes prayer for me is so unattractive because it doesn't contain my hopes, dreams, and concerns. It contains what I want, what I need, and how I'm feeling about God's delay. Ever been there? So, big question. 
Which list defines your life and your prayers? One or two? Picking back up with the prayer now, we're running short on time. He says, behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Boom, connection with Proverbs 16, 9. There's the heart again. As you're reading the Bible, always look for these links. They're there and they open up beautiful things. God is willing to meet us through prayer in those really intimate, deep, unseen places. Those places, even when we try to explain, we actually can't. Have you ever been in that scenario? Where you're trying to tell somebody something that God's up to in your life and you just can't find the words? There's a reason for that. Because it's deep and internal and intimate. Purge me with hyssop, he says. That's where it gets really biblical, so hang on, okay? Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. He's using language here, calling on the imagery of his religion, of purification. What he's saying here in these few lines is, God, be my priest. If you make me clean, I will be clean. This is the language of a man at the end of his own efforts. And I love the turn that happens after this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Like jumping in an icy river. In this prayer, we're shocked by hopeful language. It's working as it works. So many times in my life I have spent seasons feeling depressed and desperate because I have refused to engage in prayer with God. And so I didn't get this turn that I so desperately wanted. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Just as a reminder, telling your memory of your failures to go away isn't a one-time deal. Often it requires commitment to push those things back and to hide them behind the love of Jesus Christ. He returns again, please hide your face from my sin and hide it from my memory. Then we get to one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Almost done now. Everybody okay? Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit. It's the breath of God that lives in us, that makes us different. Renew a right spirit within me. Here's what prayer is, Vertical Church. Prayer is giving our heart a voice in front of God. Certainly he knows our heart already, but to hear our heart speak, it's life-changing stuff. It's why the words are so important. They reveal to us the places in us that God desires to create something new. How does he do this? Through grace and mercy, not judgment and boycott. God's love, apparently, according to the Bible, is long-suffering. So after we acknowledge our guilt, we ask for renewal. Understanding that cleaning our heart is a task only possible with the intervention of God. So as we close today, let me ask you, are you looking to transform your marriage? Are you looking to transform your parenting? Do you want your finances to be different? How about your work life? Are you concerned about the future of your church? Spend more time asking for the cleansing intervention of God.
refuse to keep God at a distance, worried about how he feels about you. Understand today the way he feels about you is full of grace and mercy and love. And if you keep him at a distance, you also keep his benefits at a distance. Prayer, when done often enough, raises our awareness and understanding of that ultimate authority. And supernaturally, it activates that ultimate authority to affect radical change at a heart level. Convinced yet? I hope so. I, I got a few more pages. We could stay longer. You know, that's a joke. I'm struggling to hold my attention. So let's keep the most important thing at the front of our minds as we leave today. It isn't about the outcome, it's about the input. This sets us free from praying, hoping that God gives us what we want. It's not about that. It's about opening ourselves up to being in relationship with God, to be arrested by the maturity that occurs the more we commit to this conversation. When we pray this way, we remind ourselves regularly that God is in charge. We participate in an ancient equation for growth, acknowledging our own limitations and failures, followed by asking God for restoration and renewal. It's about so much more than just closing your eyes and asking God for things to work out. So as we close this morning, we're going to pray together. Seems fitting, doesn't it? It's only going to be just a minute or so. We're going to practice together what the Bible says we should. And feel the activity of God. Feel the change that can occur when we acknowledge him together. Let's do that. God, we were grateful for these moments together. Seeing life change, experiencing joy and laughter. Admitting with honesty the things about following you that are really difficult, God. You ask so much of us at times it feels. It kind of feels disrespectful to say that, but it's just true. It's true for us, God. So I'm asking as we exit this place, as we leave, that we would experience your love and mercy and grace. And supernaturally, as people and as a church, we would have more tug, more pull to talk with you about the things that are going on in our lives so that then you may work. For the failures and the sins that we've committed, God, we just want to get free from those things and especially free from that shame and guilt. That's the thing you do best. And so, God, we offer you this service, our time together today. Do with it what you will in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for your attention. We'll see you next week.